0: Warning, the following podcast may contain strong language, unusual humour, emotional content, and a good cup of tea. Basically, all the good stuff. Listener's discretion is advised.
1: So last week I had to fill in the UK census, and it said... What is your ethnicity? I have no idea.
0: The declaration proclamation was delivered to the community by the Acting Interior Cabinet Secretary, Dr. Fred...
1: I didn't realize that my accent would change depending on who I was speaking to. Looks like we have
0: another exciting episode today. I'm Myra Anubi, and I look at one of the largest growing communities in the world, the Indian diaspora.
1: parents said to me, no, 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 we're going to India. And my mom said, we need to be mentally prepared to go there because she had been and she'd had quite a culture shock. I'm sitting in my living room, which I have turned into my office. (laughs) So I'm a university student and because of the pandemic, you know, the university shut. So I have three computers on my dining table. I have stacks and stacks of papers and pen on the floor and on the side and on the chairs. So uh, I'm sitting here in what looks like mess, but I like to think organized mess. Um, I've got my cup of coffee ready on the side. I have a set of scrubs because I've got to go to the hospital for work after this um and i'm really actually right now just taking a moment to to breathe the windows are open i've got these school kids are running past going to school and there's a breeze in the air and it's just quiet which is nice so at the moment i'm living in the uk on my weekday i'm studying for my phd i'm just coming to the end i'm based at Oxford university And I'm also a medical doctor. So in my free time, my weekend, (laughs) I'm at the hospital currently with the pandemic working very hard. So actually from here, I'm going back to the hospital. I've got to get this um, mask fitted and it's a new kind of mask we're using that has suction for when we are treating patients with very severe COVID. But as I said, at the moment, we're all, all at home because everything is shut due to a lockdown.
0: Wait one second. Hold on. You're a doctor. There's a pandemic going on. Plus, you are in the final lap of your PhD. Um, When you say free time,
1: (laughs) what exactly (laughs) is free time? Great question. I have approximately zero hours of free time. So my weekdays are spent working on my PhD. I'm just starting to write up my thesis. And then my weekends are spent mostly at the hospital. I work in a major trauma center which means that we take all of the traumatic injuries between London and I think it's Coventry. So all of the helicopters come here, all of the maybe building collapses, uh, bus turnovers, bad accidents. Um, So I guess my free time is the moments in between where I just get a minute to breathe, (laughs) a minute to compose myself.
0: My guest today is currently a medical doctor with the NHS here in the United Kingdom. She's also currently pursuing her PhD from the University of Oxford in musculoskeletal sciences. I have a feeling I've said that wrong. Her name is Karishma Shah.
1: At the moment, I'm known as Carrie. Is that a nickname? That's an interesting story. That came about because... I was living in London at medical school. I was working part time, actually in a cookery school, but I I don't cook. (laughs) I was just helping them out with um, some of their more menial work as a summer job. And a South African lady who was working there said, yeah, I can't pronounce this name. No, no, no. Let's just chop it. You can be Carrie. And I was like, oh, oh, uh, nobody's ever had trouble pronouncing my name before. London's pretty metropolitan, but okay.
0: In Kisumu, people have the luxury of enjoying a nice sundowner and conversation with their friends, especially on Fridays. I was first introduced to Karishma, sorry, Kari, on one of her breaks in Kisumu. It was a Friday evening at the lake and we all sat down with our drinks and enjoyed the warm breeze and music from a live band at a place we love called Dunga Hill Camp. She had this lovely fedora hat and was generally affable. It was easy to strike conversation and talk about the past and the future. Speaking of the past, have you always wanted to be a doctor?
1: No, actually, when I was younger, I wasn't sure what I wanted to be. It kind of changed. I wanted to be an actress for a minute. (laughs) And then I wanted to be a teacher because my mom and some of her family trained as teachers And then I decided I wanted to be a trophy wife because, you know, that sounded pretty glamorous. Um, And then when I was nine, I was at a boarding school and one of my teachers who has now become a mentor to me said, I think you're going to be a doctor. And I remember I was standing in, in the hallway outside the sand, the sanatorium, which is where the kids would go when they were sick to see the nurse and I could smell the medicine <laughs> from the sand. And I said to him, no way, I hate that smell. And it's all sterile and white and there are bright lights and there are people in these big coats and nobody talks to you and they just make all these decisions. No way, I'm not going to be a doctor. Well, fast forward almost 20 years and here I am as a doctor still trying to figure out what exactly I want to do with my life. Um, But
0: that's how it all came to be. Here's a fun fact for you. Indians make up roughly 20% of the international medical graduates or foreign trained doctors, especially in places like the United States. India has the largest diaspora population in the world with 18 million people from the country living outside their homeland. This according to a report that was done by the United Nations and published by the Economic Times. The highest number of immigrants from India are in places like the UAE, US, Saudi Arabia, the UK. But They are also distributed across a number of major countries and destinations across the world, one of which is
1: Kenya. I grew up in Kenya and I'm uh, ethnically, I suppose, Indian. On my mom's side, my grandparents were born in Kenya and my mom and her sister were born in Kenya and my brother and I were born in Kenya. So I guess that makes us maybe fourth generation Indian Kenyan. On my dad's side, their migration from India was much later. So he was born in Kenya, but his older siblings and his parents were born in India. And then, um, you know, all of this occurred primarily because the, the British had colonized India and most of East Africa. So they had brought the Indian people over to East Africa to work, I suppose, in managerial roles, but also in labor roles. And I remember asking, how did we get from India to Kenya. I mean, there's a whole ocean between us. <laughs> and my parents said, oh, well, we came here to build the railroads or our forefathers came here to build the railroads. So in my childhood imagination, I decided one day in India, my grandparents, great-grandparents must have been sitting on a train. You know, they must have been dressed in, in all white because that's what my granddad wore, a white uh, homemade shirt and trousers. And and brown slippers, leather slippers. So he must have been sitting on the train and one day he must have packed his bags, got his wife and his kids sat on this train and then I just assumed they would drive the train maybe a couple of kilometers, stop, get off, take off all the metal and tools, build the next few kilometers of railway, drive the train again, stop, get off. They must have done this from India to the Middle East to North Africa, to Egypt, down the Nile and into Kenya. (laughs) British were, I don't know, telling us where to go and where to build it. And here we were now in Kenya. (laughs) Of course, that's not exactly what happened. Um, But then the East African countries gained independence in in the 60s and the 70s. And unfortunately, in Uganda, there was a huge um, uprising against the people who were not indigenous to the land, and they were asked to leave. So this included Uh, The British, the Europeans, the Arabs, the Indians. And so my mom's family, based in Kenya, decided they needed to leave just in case this happened in Kenya. And sure enough, those sorts of threats were becoming more common in Tanzania and in Kenya, etc. So my mom's family, who are Islamic Indians, so they are of the Shia Muslim Islamic faith, their religious leader, the Aga Khan, had a very good relationship with Pierre Trudeau, who you'll know is the father of Justin Trudeau, the current Canadian prime minister, with Pierre Trudeau being a previous Canadian prime minister. Um, So he managed to seek asylum for some of his followers in Canada. And so they up and left. And my mom tells me, you know, she was at boarding school in Nairobi and her family were in Kisumu, and she got this call and She had to get back on this train and they said, we're we're leaving, pack your bag. You've got one night, pack your bag, and we've got to get out of here now. And can you imagine what, like, what do you pack? So they arrived in Canada, I suppose, as as refugees seeking political asylum. And so my mom spent the rest of her uh, childhood there. And then my father's family had decided to rescind their I suppose, British citizenship that they were given um, when they had migrated to Kenya. And so they remained in Kenya. And then my parents got married and my mom moved back to Kenya. And that's where my brother and I were born. I was born in Kisumu. We like to think we're a city. (laughs) But really, we're a very small town and we're a port town on the lake and i lived there up until i was nine years old and then i went to boarding school in the rift valley but i would come home for the holidays and then when i was 16 i moved to the uk for uh, boarding school again and i've lived here ever since when i think of home you know i think of being maybe six or seven and coming back from school and we would get picked up in this white pickup truck. And the the driver would be waiting on the school compound, the gates would be shut, they would be padlocked shut. And we would have this sports field that was made of dirt. And it would be blazing hot sun. And he would the driver would be waiting for us um, just by the school gate. And some of these kids, their drivers or their parents had really cool car horns. So they would hoot the horn and you would get this theme tune come out. Um, But our driver was usually very patiently waiting for us in this white pickup truck. And my brother and my cousins and I would all climb into the back of the truck and he would drive us home and we would have, you know, the wind in our hair and we'd be holding onto our school bags and the sun is blazing down on you. And there's just this dirt and this wind being picked up around you. And I remember coming home and my mom was a stay-at-home mom, so she would be there. And we had a nanny, Mary, growing up. And Mary only spoke Kiswahili. So my first language growing up was Kiswahili. I learned English after I spoke Swahili. And we would go and buy makara, which is charcoal, uh, with Mary. And, and then we would get our jiko, which is, a, you know, as you know, a, a small little stove heated with charcoal and we would heat up this jiko and we would get old newspaper and burn it with a match or a lighter, whatever we could find and stuff it into the bottom of the jiko and wait for it to light this makara and it would heat up until you get the flames on the top of the stove and then we would get this makai the the maize so we don't have sweet corn there we have maize And we would have to shuck it because it was still in the leaves. So we'd be peeling off these leaves and, you know, we put it straight on the Jiko and we'd be roasting this maize and you could smell it. You could, you know, you could smell that charcoal and that smoke, but you could also smell that sweet smell of this maize as it starts to pop. And you could hear all these little crackles and pops. And, you know, we would just wait to eat it as an after-school snack. And that is one of my favorite memories. And we'd be speaking in Swahili with Mary and my mom would be there. And we would just be sitting out on, on the tarmac floor. It was great.
0: Did you ever feel different or
1: kind of out of place? It never really struck me that I was different probably until I went to boarding school when I was nine. Interestingly, all of the teachers were British. So we had what would be described as mzungu, you know, white Caucasian teacher. So that's when it became really apparent to me that actually we're all different races. And actually, it was really interesting. I didn't realize that my accent would change depending on who I was speaking to. So when I was speaking to the kids in my class apparently I had a different accent to when I spoke to the teachers and it wasn't until one of my friends pointed out and she said um why do you speak to us differently why do you change your accent (laughs) and I had no idea what she was talking about and I was so confused um and I didn't you know I didn't think I was marking people out because of their background or the color of their skin. I just simply wanted to fit in because I wasn't sure what my own identity was. I mean, here I was a fourth generation Indian Kenyan in a majority African school and country with foreign teachers teaching us language from mainly the European continent. It was really, really confusing. And it's only now, maybe 20 years later, that I learned through a professional that this is called coding, when people pick up accents uh, from, from different uh, countries or populations to try and fit in. And I notice I do that now. You know, when I'm at the hospital, I speak like this. It's, it's sort of very posh, uh, enunciated British English, which I learned here. But then when I'm with you, I can talk like this. <laughs> so very different. That's so crazy. <laughs> Changing your accent is a desire
0: to fit in or to be liked, or as psychologists call it, conforming. One of my friends is Welsh, and I go a bit Welsh when I speak to him. I would drop my T's all the time, so my, my name would be Natalie. I would drink water.
1: It can be associated with education,
0: privilege... Or... Well, if you think that's crazy, wait till you hear about Carrie's first experience visiting India. Aave Blooms is a London-based home for lovers of life's little luxuries. We provide beautiful bouquet designs bearing African names with meanings in celebration of our founder and her friends and family's heritage. We also provide intentional, highly curated gift options. Find us at aveblooms.com today. Hi, my name is Myra Nuby, And welcome to Almost Diaspora. Here, I look at the lives of people who are or have lived in the diaspora. The good, the weird, the ugly. I'm a Kenyan living in the UK and I'm excited to take you all around the world and explore some crazy truths about living in another country. Catch me every Friday with a new episode and follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram at Almost Diaspora. Go ahead and send us an email with your questions or suggestions on the email omosdiaspora at gmail.com. India has 86.8 million people living in extreme poverty. It is, however, one of the fastest growing economies in the world. But let's put this into perspective. Today, the richest 10% in India control 80% of the nation's wealth. Let me help you out. In India, the wealth of 16 people is equal to the wealth of 600 million people.
1: So we went on a family vacation to India when I was 13. Now, before we went, I thought we were going to the Maldives. (laughs) So I thought we were going to this beautiful island or collection of islands with, you know, these huts over the water. Oh, no. My parents said to me, no, 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 no. We're going to India. And my mom said, we need to be mentally prepared to go there because she had been and she'd had quite a culture shock. And I remember my parents saying, you know, you've seen poverty in Africa, but when you go to India, it's a whole different level of poverty. And I didn't know what they meant. Um, And I remember landing in the airport in India it was three in the morning. We had just got off this Emirates flight because we would come via Dubai. Um, and the airport was lime green in color. <laughs> it was three in the morning. The, the fluorescent tube lights on the ceiling were still flashing. So they weren't even fully lit and there were flies buzzing around these fluorescent lights. Um, and this was when we landed in Mumbai, Bombay. And we got picked up by either a cab driver or someone the hotel had sent. And I remember at three in the morning, driving through the streets of Mumbai, and really, I saw poverty like I had never seen before. There were just tons of people. So India's population density is one of the highest in the world. And there were just tons of people and kids in ragged clothes, sleeping under cardboard boxes in sewage pipes. So you could see people crawling in and out of the huge cement sewage pipes with the cardboard boxes and their little fires lit on the side to keep them warm. And I was just so surprised because, of course, in Kenya, we have poverty. But in Kenya, the way the geography is set up um, is that people who are living in these conditions, they tend not to be um situated in the big high streets of the city they tend to be more in the suburbs and even within the suburbs there is still some minor infrastructure whereas in india there was almost none and there was piles and piles and piles and piles and piles piles of rubbish as far as the eye could see even on the beach it was covered in plastic bags you could not step on that beach And then we got into this hotel which was a beautiful hotel and the security opens the gate and he quickly closes it behind us because there were kids running towards our car. And you step into this hotel and suddenly you're transported into this whole other world. And they were actually hosting a movie premiere there. And so there were celebrities, there was paparazzi, there was security um, and it was glamorous and there were chandeliers and you could smell, I guess, what would have been champagne. and it was just, just mind-blowing that there were two extremes of the world right on the doorstep of each other and no interaction. Wow, my goodness.
0: How did you feel, if you can remember, as a 13-year-old, just seeing this different life and lifestyle? Um, were you kind of comfortable? What do you, can you remember anything you felt, really? So
1: I found it really difficult to be in India because it was the first time I recognized that everybody was looked the same, but everybody was in completely different environments and you had extreme poverty right next to extreme wealth. And I was just so confused as to how that could possibly happen. And I remember we were there in the monsoon season, so we had gone shopping one day and we'd gone into the store, and at 3pm it just poured rain. Now, we're used to rain in Africa, but this was a whole different level of rain. It just poured and poured and poured and poured, and the gutters over and the roads flooded, and so the store quickly put down the shutters at the front of the store and so we were stuck inside but we were in this nice store we could sit there and they would make us a cup of tea and they said oh you know would you like a sandwich to eat or a hamburger or mcdonald's and they would bring us all this food and you could see outside these kids with no shoes and these elderly women in their saris you know balancing um, their food or their pots over their head running for shelter, soaking wet with nowhere to go and running behind piles of garbage and rubbish because that was the only refuge they could find. It was just shocking.
0: There are more than 32 million non-resident Indians living all across the world. These are people who are Indian either by birth, descent or origin. And though they enjoy a lifestyle that reflects their rich traditions and culture, some have little or no interaction with India. It can be quite confusing when they visit India for the very first time.
1: From Mumbai, we went uh, to a very small village for a religious pilgrimage for um, Jainism, which is the religion my father and his family follow. And there we met some I suppose, distant relatives or or elderly Indian family friends. Um, and it was such a different world because they lived in a society where religion was at the center of everything they did. So we had to go and stay in what would be the equivalent of a monastery, so a temple overnight before we could go on this pilgrimage. And they would wash your feet. The monks would wash your feet for you and you were only allowed to wear the color white. We were not allowed any towels. So I remember my mom <laughs> had to go to the market outside and buy us some towels and some toilet paper because you weren't allowed that or you they did not provide that in this temple where we had to stay overnight. And then we had to wake up at approximately four in the morning and they would pray over us and give us some food And then we would have to walk a few thousand steps up to this temple. And before we went, I asked if I could have something to drink. And I asked for a cup of tea, assuming that I would get, you know, tea with milk. And sure enough, there was milk in it, but turns out it was buffalo milk. (laughs) Right, of course. (laughs) Because cows are so holy, they don't drink cow milk.
0: What religion influenced you the most as a child?
1: So my parents are different religions, which made it very difficult for them because in their generation, it was uh, quite unheard of and unspoken to marry across different faiths. But that meant my brother and I were very fortunate growing up because we had these very open-minded parents um, who were always encouraging us to explore and think and question and, you know, stand up for what we believed in. So we grew up in a house that actually didn't express much religious faith in one way or another. My mom is Islamic. My father is Jain, which is actually closer to Buddhism than it is to Hinduism. And then I had a nanny growing up who was devoutly Christian and would read the Bible every night to my brother and I to make us get to sleep. And when I was nine, I went to boarding school, which happened to be a faith school, a Christian school. So we had to go to church. Um,
0: if someone asked you, who are you, Karishma? Um, where are you from? Where is
1: whom? What, um, what would you say? So last week I had to fill in the UK census and it said, what is your ethnicity? Now, normally, with all of these questionnaires I get from work, etc., I always tick other because I have no idea how I could possibly pick one background over another. You know, of course, racially, I'm Indian, but actually, I identify as East African Indian or Kenyan Indian. And actually, President Kenyatta in Kenya, I think, in 2017, made Kenyan Indian the 44th tribe. government adds them to the list of Kenyan tribes. This recognition and will go along. Historic
0: way. pleasure to be the one to present to you the 44th community of Kenya.
1: So there we have an identity, but living in the diaspora, the second diaspora here, I'm not sure who I would identify as being. So on this UK census, I've had to tick Indian, but I don't think that a full representation of who I am, because I'm Indian, but I'm Kenyan, but I'm Canadian, but I'm British, but, you know, I'm learning to speak four languages, none of some of which are not my mother tongue. So I'm not sure who I am in that sense. And equally, I'm not sure where home is. Home at the moment is where I'm living, but it will always be where I grew up in Kenya because my parents still live there but then it will always be in Canada because I would spend all my summers growing up there. And at the same time, part of me will always be Indian because my, some of my culture and my tradition is from there.
0: Is there anything that you have in your house, um, on your desk, that reminds you of Kenya or Kisumu, um, the one thing that you travel with everywhere you go?
1: So I'm looking directly at these two candle holders and they're in the shape of hippos. And I bought them when I was in Kisumu because, you know, we lived near the lake and sometimes at night the hippos would actually come out of the lake. And when I was growing up, we could sit on the dining room table and we had a clear view straight from the table onto Lake Victoria and you could see the sunset. And at about nine or 10 PM when it was, very, very quiet, very still. And just a few mosquitoes buzzing around, you would see these hippos. And they would come out of the water and they would start to feed on the grass. And by the morning, they'd be gone, just like magical creatures. And you'd come out to perfectly mowed lawn. <laughs> and just these footprints of these hippos left over. So I have my hippo candle holders to remind me of what it was like growing up there Many faces, many races. I have come through many places, but I never seen a sky so. Big. You absolutely have to visit Kenya, it has the most welcoming people. Anywhere you go, anybody will welcome you for a cup of tea and will welcome you for a mandazi, which is a donut. And I would recommend that people go to the coast, to Mombasa, where we have the beautiful Indian Ocean, wonderful weather, and then also on safari, where you can see all of these amazing animals. And, and it really feels like dawn is breaking.
0: Thank you so much, Karishma. This felt like we were back in Kisumu chatting away, like we used to, by the lakeside. I can't thank you enough for being part of this episode.
1: Oh, wow. That's where I met you, Myra. And, you know, it's been so great to get to know you and reminisce about time in Kenya. So thank you so much for having me on your podcast.
0: Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like to contribute in any way, go ahead and send an email to almost diaspora
1: at gmail dot com.